Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. I'm joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? David, I'm great. Happy New Year. A new Happy year, new- a new us. A, a new year, a new us. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. Absolutely. Uh, and, and with the new year, we would have thought that the uh, 2020 election is over, uh, but it uh, doesn't seem to be entirely over. Uh, we still have the, the Georgia runoff election happening tomorrow, which is going to determine the control of the Senate. Um, and we have some interesting uh machinations happening uh, with the counting of the electoral votes uh, on uh, the 6th of January. This is, this is on where they are going to open the, the, the ballots that were cast in the Electoral College, and there seems to be uh, Republicans who are going to object to, to the counting uh, of these ballots, including uh, Senator Josh Hawley, who is going to object, uh, and a contingent of 10, I uh, believe, or 11 Republican Congress or senators led by Ted Cruz, who want to appoint a special commission to investigate what they see as electoral fraud. Uh, plus, we've got a crazy phone conversation between President Trump and uh, Georgia Secretary of State Brad, uh, Brad Raffson. Uh, Berger, uh, where Trump asked him to find a bunch of votes for him, which sounds a whole lot like uh, voter or electoral fraud. Uh, all of which is to say is that we thought the election was over. It seems like uh, may not be over. Yeah, if I can just say two things, David. Um, we originally, when we talked about this episode last week, we planned on doing a sort of 2020 wrap up and we were going to talk about books and podcasts we liked, etc. We've been overtaken by events. Whether we'll ever have that episode or not remains to be seen. The second thing I would say is, you know, none of these problems exist if there is no electoral college and or if the uh, transition period is much shorter, both of which would solve these particular uh, uh, issues that we're going to be discussing today. But uh, alas, we do have an electoral college and the transition period is very long. Uh, And so we are where we are and, and we've seen all these machinations as you called them we could call them shenanigans but that might actually make them sound like um hijinks which is yeah. not what's happening <laughs> or we could talk about it as a potential coup which is the framing that some people are using that's um, right and so i thought we'd talk about sort of the, the antecedents for this whether this is a coup or not maybe there are some coups in american issue we could talk about and see how this compares to that um uh, and I guess the, the first antecedent that, sort of, uh, that actually is being invoked by, by Ted Cruz and others is the electoral commission that was appointed in 1877 in their uh, sort of memorandum announcing this, this demand that they have a special commission. Uh, they point to the electoral commission of 1877 as their uh, antecedent for, for, for their uh, demand that we postpone certifying the election. Yeah, I mean, it it really needs saying, David, that um, for at least since for most of the last century, probably even more than a century, the counting of the the, of the votes in the Electoral College has not really been an issue and hasn't really been contested like this uh, in any meaningful way. Yeah, there's been a few odds and ends. There was there was like uh, uh, some electoral votes from Hawaii in 1860 that were contested. There was a moment in 2000. 1960, you mean? 1960. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 1860 Hawaii wasn't a big uh, factor in the electoral college or other things that were. Um, But uh, in 2000, there was this very interesting moment um, in which they are counting the the ballots. Uh, And of course, the president of the Senate 
he is in charge of counting the ballots. And the president of the Senate is also the vice president, which in this case right. was Al Gore. And um, there were a couple of Democratic congressmen who objected to the returns from Florida. Uh, and and Gore had to ask, is there a senator who wants to join them in this objection? Because they needed the, the, the law. And we'll talk about the law in a minute. The law requires both a, a member of the House and a member of the Senate to, to object. And no member of the Senate joined those uh, two or three Democrats from the House who objected to the count from Florida. And Gore was... Uh, obviously very interested in the results, but said, thank you, but we really don't need to do that. We're going to move on. Um, so it was a very sort of bizarre moment. But yeah, other than that, like it's not something that, that comes up, even though we have had a number of, of close elections. Yes, that's it. I mean, that, that is the overall point. And, and the fact that uh, Ted Cruz and, and the others uh, advocates of this, of this, uh, of these actions, uh, which we may see tomorrow uh, on Wednesday, rather, um, are invoking the election of 1876 and the Electoral Commission of 1877 is um, at the very least bizarre because, as we'll see in a moment, it's a very, very uh, it's not a it's not an election you'd want to use as a precedent for anything. I suspect, um, but but I want to really turn things over to you and give give the give the floor to you because you're oh, the geez. expert on on the 19th century uh, and particularly the Civil War era, and this is to some extent the end. Uh, it's often taken as the end of Reconstruction. It's not really yeah. as we know, but but um, let let's can can you uh, assume that we are um, that our listeners and indeed your your co-host are intelligent <laughs> yet perhaps not as well informed about the uh, nuances of the 1877, 1876-77 election as you are. So talk us through it. What happened? What's going on in 1876? What leads to this electoral commission mess in 1877? What, what, give us just a brief right. synopsis of what so, happens. So, so, and, so the, yeah, please. The brief, the brief background, and I think this, this I'll try to be concise here, and this is hard to be concise with. And so this is a slightly over a decade after the Civil War. Um, and, you know, Reconstruction is ultimately about how you put the country back together after the Civil War. And what you had seen in the previous few years is a, well, really throughout Reconstruction, is a very concerted effort by, by white Southerners to reclaim control over state governments in the South. Uh, and they're doing so using a tremendous amount of, of violence, intimidation, Electoral fraud, voter fraud, all kinds of, of, of uh, stuff. Um, in fact, you actually had coups in Reconstruction governments in the South in, in 1874 in, in Arkansas, in Louisiana, in Alabama, where, where people who lose elections are actually using violence to overthrow local governments, to overthrow state governments. Um, to stuff ballot boxes, to do all kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, the, the, these, you know, when we talk about sort of election fraud and voter fraud, these are times in which those things were actually real significant issues. And those all come to the fore uh, in the election of 1876, uh, which posits uh, the Republican uh, Rutherford B. Hayes versus Samuel Tilden. Uh, after the elections happens, 
it looks as if Tilden has, you need 185 votes, electoral votes at the time. Tilden had 184, Hayes had 165, and there were 20 that were in dispute. Uh, from South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana, there was also one vote in, I believe, Oregon that was uh, in dispute. Uh, and that was for stupid reasons. Uh, but the ones in, in South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana are the important ones, I guess. All three states, you've got competing sets of electors. You've got debates over who, you know, uh, vote fraud and tampering. Uh, Congress doesn't have a mechanism. The sort of mechanism we have now for evaluating things is actually a response to this. So we don't, they don't have that yet. The Democrats are in charge of the House at this point. Republicans are in charge of the Senate. They don't have a, a tool for figuring out uh which ballots to, or which electoral votes to count and which ones not to. And they end up creating this electoral commission that, that gets established at the very end of January of 1877. This, of course, is in the 19th century where there's a much longer period of time between when the election happens and when the inauguration happens. They appoint 15 people to this commission. There's going to be five members of the House, five members of the Senate, and five members of the Supreme Court. Uh, and the premise was that it was supposed to be bipartisan. It was supposed to be sort of neutral. In fact, uh, you know, they actually had supposed to have uh, of the five members of the Supreme Court, there was one guy who was a supposed to be the the sort of independent since he was he claimed to have no political party. But then he was actually appointed to the Senate by the state of Illinois. So they actually had to replace him. It's complicated. And what they end up doing is essentially giving all of the electoral votes that were in dispute to Rutherford B. Hayes, but in return for which uh, there's sort of this back uh, backroom agreement for Republicans to stop Reconstruction, to stop sort of meaningfully enforcing, uh, making black freedom meaningful, uh, to pull out the few remaining troops that were in the South, to stop efforts to... to, to uh, interfere from the perspective of Southern white Democrats interfere with, with local politics. Uh, so it's often seen as being the end of reconstruction, whether it is or not is a matter of some debate, but it's at least an important moment in, towards the end of reconstruction. So why would somebody like Ted Cruz invoke this as a precedent? Cause it seems like a, a, a dubious precedent at best. Oh, it's, it's not a good in the 2020 context. Well, so it's it's not a good precedent for for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is it didn't work very well. You know, it's not as if this independent electoral commission actually evaluated the evidence independently. They voted and they voted along party lines on everything they voted on. So yeah, there's 15 people. They eight Republicans, seven Democrats, and they all voted party line voting. So it was not a uh, independent commission in any sort of meaningful way to evaluate evidence in a in a uh, even-handed sort of sense. Uh, the other reason why it's a bad precedent is that in the aftermath of the 1877 election, they actually pass a law about how to deal with disputed elections, which they didn't have in 1877, but they do have now. And that's the Electoral Count Act of 1887, which is the law that we're functioning under now with some slight revisions. 
So we actually have a better example of, you know, we actually have a, a tools in place for how to count ballots that we didn't have um, in 1876, 1877. So the whole thing with the, the safe harbor day and all those kinds of things that, that people have talked about in the past few weeks, all of those derive from the Electoral Count Act of 1887. Uh, so we have mechanisms now that are, that are in place that they didn't have uh, in this disputed election. So it's a bad precedent. One thing though that often gets forgotten um, about the, this disputed election, 1876, 1877, is that there was a real threat of violence. Um, you know, there was a, a, public, or, sorry, a Democratic congressman, a guy named Henry uh, Watterson from Kentucky, who was a former Confederate soldier, who called for 100,000 men to come to Washington unless Tilden was inaugurated. You know, and these, this is only a little bit over a decade after the Civil War. So, you know, the, and looking at the sort of violence that had happened in Reconstruction uh, connected with elections in the South over the past few years was profound. I mean, there were, there were huge numbers, hundreds of people killed in the South in connection with elections. And there was a real threat that the 1876 election would result in significant violence. And I think that's one of the things that um, I'm worried about with the uh, this this event happening on on the sixth is there you know, people are calling for for Trump supporters to to come to Washington in large numbers and to come prepared for something and and uh, you know luckily we didn't have violence in 1877 at least not uh, massive violence uh, but we could you know who knows what could happen um, on Wednesday so. I'm worried about sure. that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I and I share that concern. I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is there was an expectation of violence around the election in November, and thankfully <laughs> that didn't come to pass. So let's hope that that's what happens this week. Although we did have, we don't know exactly what happened in Nashville on Christmas Day, mm. but there was a, it was a pretty significant bombing on Christmas Day in Nashville. Uh, we don't know exactly what the bombers' motives were. We know some of them, I guess, but uh, we haven't. Uh, um, the news reports are certainly um, incomplete at this point. Uh, but th there is certainly a threat of violence around this election. And it should be said, and we've talked about this in the past, elections were pretty violent in the 19th century generally. Uh, and so there was a greater tolerance, I guess, for violence around elections in the 19th century than we now have in the 21st century, which is a good thing. Politics were violent, as Joanne Freeman has shown. Mm. You know, politi national politics within Congress were, was quite violent, uh, and and that's not that's certainly not a not a culture we want to uh, return to in the in the uh, context of what's going on right now. What's what's the end game for Ted Cruz and these ten senators? I mean, I, I mean, on one hand, I think it's very convenient because we now know who's running for president in 2024 uh, for the Republican nomination. I think that's clearly what, what we're seeing signaled. But, but mm -hmm. you know, do, do, do you think, and uh, your guess is as good as mine, but do you think they think they can actually overturn this election or is this just a signal to uh, Trump and to Trump's base, you know, that we're with you? Is this theater or is it serious? Well, I think it is both theater and serious, um, which is to say that that I, I don't think they're going to overturn the election. I think that's highly unlikely, although uh, 
recent events seem to, to, to suggest that almost anything is possible. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, just like these Trump lawsuits that have all been thrown out of courts, I think those are uh, frivolous lawsuits, but I think that th those are things that we should take seriously because I think there, there's a real threat embedded in the actions of, of these senators and uh, Josh Hawley's objection and, and the various people in the House um, where they're going to claim, you know, if they don't win and they're not going to win, that the election was fraudulent. And we're going to end up with a situation where there's a significant number of the members of uh, Congress don't see President Biden as a legitimate president, and a decent number of people in the in the country who see who think he is a fraudulent and and a, a illegitimate president, and that's really deeply problematic for you know just this nature of American democracy. We we the whole thing only works if people think that the elections are are legitimate and the people who are in office have the support of the majority of the people and were there legitimately. And if you know if this serves to further undercut the uh, people's faith in, in government. That's a real problem. And obviously faith in government's not really very high right now. Not um, least if I can, if I can interject quickly, yeah. David, um, you know, the justice department has, has, has already said this was the, you know, the cleanest election in American history. It was a clean election carried out under, under adverse circumstances. This was yes. actually an election that Americans should and could be proud of. But of course, this debate is is as you say, absolutely about whether it was fraudulent or not, because that that accusation has been repeated so so frequently. What what do you think their motivations are? I mean, it's hard to get in Ted Cruz's head. But yeah, it is. Uh, I think. Well, as I said, I think a lot of these people have have ambitions to run for president themselves, and this is a way of seeking to win. Uh, the affection of President Trump's base. Now, I think that's going to be a difficult thing to do because if, if one thing, if we've seen one thing uh, in the past four, now really five years, is President Trump's hold on the Republican Party is considerable, but it's very much a cult of personality. So whether whether it will, I, I think the the uh, forces he's unleashed are going to be with us for a good long time. But whether they can be mobilized in the same way, if they're not, if he's not the one doing the mobilizing, I, I'm mm -hmm. skeptical about. Uh, but I think on one hand, each one of these individuals is is sending a signal that they want to be the heir, the heir to Trump and Trumpism. The fact that ten United States senators are signing up to this is worrying in and of itself. Uh, but, but I think that's what's what's going on here. I don't think they really think, nor do they necessarily even want the election to be overturned. I mean, to some extent, if you're Ted Cruz and you want to win the White House, you have a much better chance of doing so if you spend the next four years attacking President Biden and and, and asserting that he's illegitimate than you do if pres by some miracle um, President Trump got a second term and, you know, was you know becoming gradually or, or steadily you know, demented sure. um, or more demented. And, and, and that's not a good outcome for Ted Cruz, actually. Uh, so, so I don't think they actually want the election overturned. Having said that, the message they're sending to Trump's most fervent acolytes is, yes, this should be overturned and it could be overturned. Now, I, I agree with you. I don't see a, I don't see that that's actually possible legally. But, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's the message that a lot of Trump supporters are, are, are getting. Again, I don't 
we don't know what the exact motivations of the of the, the Nashville bomber on Christmas Day were, mm. but you know there are people out there who are unstable who will be you know encouraged by some of this, and that's that's very very worrying. So I think I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I I I think the prospects for President Biden's term are really really dim, especially if the Democrats don't win control of those of the Senate uh, and win those two um, Georgia seats tomorrow. Uh, and uh, not least because it's not even that we're going to have opposition in the way that, you know, Mitch McConnell was determined to oppose everything that uh, Barack Obama stood for. We're going to have a crisis of legitimacy for the next four years. And we're going to be arguing about this election for the next four years. And what's, you know, to go back to my original point, what's, what's particularly kind of galling about that is that this election was pretty clean. It was carried mm. out under adverse circumstances. And actually, American voters and American public officials all did their jobs and did them responsibly in ways that were quite admirable in November, and that's being lost. Yeah. So, so is this a coup attempt? Because, I mean, that's the term that's been used for these various efforts by the Trump people to, to overthrow this election, whether it's in the courts or, or whatever it is going to happen on Wednesday. Should we see this as a coup? I mean, it depends on how you define a coup. And, and I okay. realize that you're not asking us to do that. I mean, strictly sure, speaking. Sure, define a coup and then say. Well, it's well does strictly it speaking in modern history, coups normally involve a military intervention in the civil affairs and the civil government of a, of a, of a polity and overthrowing this, the government. Um, I remember when I was an undergraduate, I had a friend who I suspect was a fascist from a, a certain country. Um, <laughs> you had a friend who was the fascist. Okay. <laughs> well, he was, okay. he was a fascist from a certain uh, country in South America. Uh, and and he, 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 I remember one night over beers, he was trying to make the case for, you know, in my country, coups are a good thing because, because they can be reformist and coups can be reformist depending on the, on, on the government. But, but <laughs> I've often thought of that guy in, in the, uh, in, in recent weeks. And, uh, you know, so coups, uh, you know, strictly speaking, a coup in, in the modern, in, in kind of contemporary parlance is usually a military overthrow of civilian government or a military intervention. And, and we don't see that. We don't see that, although there are elements of the, you know, Trump has undoubtedly tried to kind of militarize the Justice Department and, and or create use paramilitaries in, in at certain moments during the Black Lives Matter protests, for example. But we, we haven't seen any serious intervention by the U.S. military in this election or any indication that the U.S. military is going to intervene and seek to overturn the election result. We haven't seen any of that. And that's to be welcomed. And I think um, the uh, and so, so strictly speaking, I don't think this is a coup attempt. Is it an attempt? Is it an attempt to overthrow the or reverse the election result? Absolutely. But they keep losing. Can you really have a coup if it's led by Rudy Giuliani and, and that drunk woman well, in Michigan? I mean, this is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I embrace a, a broader definition of what a coup is. And here it's an effort to, you know, overthrow a, a legitimate government. And. You know, it can be violent, but it can also be. There's also ways in which you can have a coup that that's you know a a less violent, or the the violence is more implied than than explicit. Um, and the fact that they're incompetent at it, I think, doesn't mean it's not a coup. It just means they're incompetent. Um, but they've demonstrated their incompetence for the past four years, and that incompetence 
and and with powers is 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 just as dangerous as I mean it's not as well, I don't know. it's still a coup even if even if they're bad at it. No, but let me push back, David, because I think if we call everything a coup, every attempt to, to reverse the election a coup, it 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 undermines and undervalues. It takes the impact away from that word, and there and and there is a problem with that because then the folks who are trying to reverse these election results will say, well, they said it was a coup. Clearly, this wasn't a coup. You know, they're, they're hysterical. They overreact. Mm. And, 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 you know, it, it, you know, it, it's, you know, they're snowflakes. They overreact to everything. This wasn't what was happening. You know, I think a coup, a narrower definition of a coup of the kind I, you know, is, is tanks in the streets occupying, you know, what happens in a coup, you know, the army goes and they take over the, the TV and radio stations and they broadcast, you know, general so-and-so is now in charge. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening here. At least not yet. <laughs> no, it wasn't well, again to our episode in two weeks. So well, yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah, but there's no indication that we're going down that road. I mean, we're we're in danger. We're in a dangerous place. We've been in a dangerous place for a long time. I'm in no way seeking to mm. downplay the significance of the events we're seeing, but I don't think it's a coup. Okay. Uh, I think we'll wait and see what happens on Wednesday. Um, yes, this 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 episode could age very badly. Very badly. Well. <laughs> Exactly when they have, they have the firing squads uh, on Thursday. Um, so we we have had some uh, coups though, uh, and attempted coups in America. So let's let's see if we can sort of place this into some context, maybe against some other things which which people do see as as coups to see how they fit. And I guess there was a, a coup, a short or an attempted coup, or a, a plot for an attempted coup. Uh, Shortly after the the American Revolution, Frank, do you want to talk about about, about Newburgh and what happened or may have happened sure, and there? I, and I think that's really really important as far as a precedent for for uh, what's going on now. And in fact, possibly for my narrow definition of a coup, uh, or more narrow than yours. So in March of 1783, or in the winter of 1782-3, going into the spring of 1783, the War of Independence, the American War of Independence, is winding down. The Continental Army is still still exists because the war's not over yet. The speech treaty wasn't signed until September of 1783. Nope, the British still occupy New York with a, pretty, with a very large army. And so the Continental Army is in camp in Newburgh, New York. And it's very restive because the, most of the fighting in the war has stopped. The major campaigns are over. But the soldiers in the Continental Army haven't been paid in some cases for years. Uh, they were promised pensions, and it wasn't clear that Congress was going to fund those pensions. Um, and there was a great deal of restiveness in the in the army. There was also there were also divisions, and I think this is where it's it's germane to what may or may happen may or may not happen this week. There were were divisions in Congress. We don't have political parties yet, but there were kind of factions in Congress. One of which wanted Congress. Congress at that point had no authority to tax or to raise revenue. So it basically had to say to the states, please send us money. States had no money to send in 1783. They had a telephone to say, please send us money. We have starving soldiers in Newburgh. Um, Congress said, this is our Patreon. We'd like to support our Patreon. (laughs) Uh, Thank our Patreon supporters. Uh, So, so, uh, and there's a faction in Congress that wants to give Congress the authority to raise money and may or may not have 
tried to bring together and so that faction in Congress includes Alexander Hamilton, he of the musical, but also more, <laughs> more importantly, late of the Continental Army. So a lot of these people had been in the army. They were aware of the dissatisfaction within the army. And what happened in the winter of 1782-83 is, or may, or may have happened, was that there's talk in both in Congress and in the army and possibly collaboration between the two to foment unrest in the army, to threaten what we would call a coup. And this would fit my definition of a coup if you're talking about a military intervention to overthrow civilian government. And there are whispers about this. It's not clear exactly what they've planned. It's more of a conspiracy than a coup because it's not actually attempted. Um, but what happens is that uh, two things. On March 15, 1783, in one of the kind of dramatic set piece moments of his career, George Washington confronts the officers of the Continental Army. He speaks quite eloquently about the importance of um, civilian control of the military in the United States and in this new republic. And he basically says, I am not with you and dashes this thing on the head. And Look, Washington's reputation, I think, is overblown in certain areas. This is one of the times where Washington is a good guy doing the right thing. And he was very, very consistent throughout the war of independence and after that civilian control of the military was a kind of a cornerstone of the American Republic. And this is a key moment for that because he's very sympathetic to the officers of the army. He refers yeah. to them as his family and everything else. But he says, we cannot do this. You cannot do this and I will not support you, and that's the end of it. And so this is, it's not a coup, it's often called, a, it's a conspiracy to have a coup, hmm. but the coup doesn't happen, it's not attempted, it may never have been intended to happen. Uh, there's a very good uh, book about this by David Head that's recently came out, came out last year called Crisis of Peace, um, that, that looks at this in some detail. Uh, it's a possible coup it's a discussion of a coup mm. uh, they're in the waiting room for a coup uh but it doesn't happen and there's an assertion of civilian control of the military in the united states which more or less has been held for most of american history it's been tested occasionally mm. especially in your period but also frankly in recent years but basically the military has in is is separate from uh domestic politics in the United States and has been for most of American history. And this is a key turning point for that, which is I apologize for going on at length, but there's an important precedent here. As I said, there's an element of it in thinking about this this morning for, for, for this episode, you know, the, the fact that some members of Congress were flirting with this and may have been actually the, the architects of it is, is a little bit, there are some resonances with what we're seeing with these 10 senators um, uh, this week. But uh, so I think Newberg was an important precedent. Okay. Now, what about the, the door rebellion? Because that actually was a coup that sort of happened. Well, the door rebellion, the door rebellion, in fact, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, who I'm sure is one of our listeners, um, if you're looking to write a musical, another musical of American history, the door rebellion would be a good thing. So the door rebellion happens in Be Rhode huge Island. in Rhode Island. Be <laughs> huge big. in Rhode Island. Big in Rhode Island. My dad grew up in Rhode Island, so I've got a lot of sympathy. Rhode Island's a weird little state. Um, so, so the Door Rebellion takes place in 1841 and 42. Rhode Island, which was one of the states that didn't ratify the federal constitution first time around, the other being your beloved North Carolina. Yes. Um, Rhode Island has always been a little bit of a political outlier. Rhode Island did not draft, it was one state that did not draft a new constitution 
after independence, during the American Revolution. It relied on its charter from 1633, I think it is. And so it was still governed by this, this charter, 17th century charter. And this gave a lot of power to the rural interest in Rhode Island. Rhode Island's a small state, but, but, but because of the Industrial Revolution in the 1820s and 30s, Rhode Island is actually a heavily industrial state. Places like Pawtucket are really, really important. Uh, and, and Rhode Island becomes increasingly urban, but the urban population has no political power. And the urban industrial middle class, um, led by this guy, I think is Thomas Wilson Dorr, um, foments a rebellion of sorts in 1841 and 42, demanding constitutional reform. So this is a case where the rebels or the coup plotters, if we're calling this a coup, are the good guys because they're actually saying, look, you can't give all this power and deny it to, to a small rural elite and deny the vote basically to, uh, this is after Jacksonian democracy, there's been so-called universal manhood suffrage, at least for white uh, Americans, and none of that pertains in Rhode Island yet. And so the Door Rebellion is about creating a new constitution and expanding the franchise. It fails in the sense that the, the, the government, there are competing governments at one point in 1842 in Rhode Island, but that the charter government survives, but it eventually in 1843 gives, creates a new constitution that does expand the franchise and we don't have to belabor the details of this. So the, the Door Rebellion is an interesting, if we're, we're going with this definition of a coup, it's a failed coup, but it wins in its overall objectives, I would say. Well, it does, but I mean, there is this moment in which you, you know, where, where Dorr and his supporters, you know, say, like, look, the, the, the Rhode Island government is illegitimate. The governor is illegitimate. The legislature is illegitimate. We are going to establish our own government, and we are the legitimate government of yeah, Rhode Island. Yeah, they're competing governments. That's um, and, and, you know, one thing I'm worried about in my sort of, you know, fever dreams at four in the morning it is, you know, one of the things that could happen in the aftermath of, of whatever happened on, on Wednesday is that Trump and his people say, look, I'm the legitimate president, you know, and I'm going to reestablish, a, a, you know, the presidency in Mar-a-Lago or something. Um, now, that's not going to happen, but, um, well, you know, we do have this sort of antecedent for 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 rival governments and this causes cause real problems. I mean, you know, how, who do you pay your taxes to if there are two rival governments? Yeah, but I, I mean, historically this has happened in other countries where you've actually had competing governments. I don't think that, you know, again, I don't think that um, uh, future attorney general under the Trump, uh, under the Trump, the continued Trump administration, uh, Rudy Giuliani is, is studying the Door Rebellion as an important precedent. And he said, you know, we're going to be issuing, you know, diktats from Mar-a-Lago citing the Door Rebellion. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think there, they, that, that there's a danger that, that uh, Trump and some of his acolytes refuse to accept the result on Wednesday. I'm not sure they're going to create a, a rival government in waiting or be yeah. able to do so. Um, yeah, it's a, it's obviously a you know, whole different level of, of structure when you're dealing with state governments. The other sort of example you have that's sort of similar to that is in Kansas after the Kansas-Nebraska Act, right? Where you do have two rival governments: a, a rabidly pro-slavery government and a rabidly anti-slavery government who wage war against each other for, well, some ways for ten years. 
Um, the Dora Rebellion seems not to have been particularly violent. I believe Dora at one point started to raise a militia and had a cannon, but the cannon misfired. The cannon misfired, killed, yeah. And they killed somebody, like a bystander or something. So then Dora said, okay, we're not doing that. But, um, you know, the, there's potential for the, sort of the, the bloodless version of this and, and the bloody version of this. Right, but, you, but this can go the other way, though, David, because Trump's authority to some extent, particularly with... Um, his more fervent followers mm. is, you know, the image he gets, and you see this in some of the uh, pop culture that's created about him. The imagery is of a strong man, you mm. know, so you get these absurd paintings where he's, you know, got, they put Trump's head on Rambo's body and this kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit bizarre given Trump's physical state, but this is a, there's, there's a definite theme in the, on the extreme right of presenting Trump as this kind of superhero, almost superheroic figure. Um, and, a lot of that goes away if he's frog marched out of the White House on January 20th by the Secret Service because he refuses to leave. Um, because he, he, they, he will look, instead of looking strong, he will look weak. No, to be sure. And, 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 and so, you know, in, in part, you can only create a government waiting. You can only do this kind of thing um, if you've got real authority to do so and and political authority trump's never understood this he thinks he can just assert things and it makes them so mm -hmm. uh and that's worked quite well for him i mean we saw this with the, with regard to that phone call with the the georgia secretary of state that, that uh dropped yesterday asserting things doesn't necessarily make them so and 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 you know there's a kind of there could be an emperor's got no clothes moment mm. when you know, if he asserts that he's the president and they're dragging him out, he'll he'll look weak rather than strong under those circumstances. Yeah, there there's a sense in which the uh, power of positive thinking that 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 Trump is so you know, uh, 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 fond of it, it does seem to require you to have live in an alternate reality. Um, you know, thinking about coups on American history, the one that that strikes me as the, the, uh, the coup that everyone agrees is a coup is, is in Wilmington in 1898. Yeah. Can you uh, talk about that, David? Sure. So, um, you know, this is two decades after the compromise of 1877, this supposed sort of end of reconstruction. But one thing people often don't so realize about the South in the late 19th century is that there, there remains a large number of, of, even after Reconstruction, a large number of African-Americans who can vote, a large number of African-Americans who are holding office. Um, and in North Carolina, uh, the city of Wilmington, the largest city in the state uh, at the time, uh, was uh, one of those places in which there was a, a black majority and, and a large amount of black political power uh, they, were, they were electing congressmen, uh, black congressmen from North Carolina. They were having black uh, local officials and, and what have you, um, and, and people in the state legislature. Uh, and what happens in Wilmington is part of a sort of a broader white supremacy campaign that's being waged across North Carolina and across the South. Uh, but what happens in Wilmington essentially is that uh, the leaders of this statewide white supremacy campaign bring in something in the order of 2,000 uh, white men, many of them part of the state militia, some of them who are actually technically still part of the U.S. Army because of the Spanish-American War, go in uh, to Wilmington and kill something on the order of 60 to 300 people. That's, the numbers are, are still a bit vague. Overthrow the local government, install uh, 
white Democrats, white supremacist white Democrats in local government in, in Wilmington um, and in other parts, uh, there's some similar mechanisms in, in other parts of the state. But here's a situation where we have a democratically elected legitimate government in Wilmington being overthrown through violence instigated by people like the, the person who ends up becoming governor of the state, instigated by one of the people who uh, gets installed as, as mayor of, of Wilmington, instigated by the guy who is the, the most important newspaper editor uh, in the state who later becomes secretary of the Navy. Um, you know, it is a violent overthrow of, of a legitimate government. So if you want your definition of a coup, uh, that's, you know, Wilmington's the one example you, you look to. Yep, I, I, I agree. Uh, and it's, it's a, an event that actually I think the state of North Carolina is still dealing with in as much as the people who led the coup, who were in charge of, of uh, you know, killing lots of citizens uh, because of the color of the skin and their, uh, the, their political affiliation, those are people that they had all kinds of buildings named after um, streets and towns and all the kinds of things. Uh, and, and even, you know, today the, the state is sort of dealing with, you know, how many things named after governor Acock, who was famous as being a pro education governor, but also was a pro white supremacy overthrow legitimate government governor. Um, you know, do we name things, remove things that are named after him? And there's lots of stuff that's named after him. Uh, the football stadium at UNC is named after a guy who was one of the people in charge of shooting people in the, you know, the Wilmington riot. So massacre, call it whatever you want to. Um, so yeah, we do have actual coups in the United States that look like the kinds of coups that, that your fascist friend from South America is familiar with where they're people with guns overthrowing governments and, and using violence to do so. I'm hoping that doesn't happen on Wednesday, but, uh, we do have we do have antecedents. The United States is not exempt from that kind of, of political machinations that we tend to associate with less functional democracies. Well, and arguably, secession was an attempted coup. Yes. <laughs> yeah, to be sure, right? Uh, and well, the American Revolution is an attempted coup, right? Like, so I mean, the question is, when well, we... no, 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 no. No, you don't think you're so? wrong. No, because. They didn't overthrow George III's, you know, George III remained in, in power for the next, you know, for decades after that. So, so they, they overthrew a bunch of royal governors. Yes, but they were George. So they overthrew British rule. But that, I mean, not every change in government, even if it involves violence, is necessarily a Sorry, this is a seminar topic okay. <laughs> that our listeners. But no, I would say that that's that. I mean, that's a. Whether it's a revolution or not, big debate about that. It's definitely a war for independence. But but George the Third, the British government was not overturned by the American Revolution, so that's not a coup. Or even okay. A bit. Okay. I guess we're we're getting into semantics here about definitions yeah. of what a coup is. Um, but you know, people who led the the uh, revolution of, of 1860, 1861 saw themselves as doing the same things that uh, uh, people in the revolution did. Um, Yes, but well, anyways. But anyway, okay. So we, we we have we have we have <laughs> Wednesday could be interesting, right? Okay, so we will we will see what happens, and and, and our, our 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 prognostication may be entirely incorrect, uh, as borne out by by events. Uh, but but and hundreds the, of previous episodes. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> 
Exactly. Um, <laughs> but, but I think this does sort of doesn't bode whatever happens on Wednesday, it doesn't sort of bode well for the sort of state of the, the American polity in terms of, of, of people's faith in government and in, in democratic uh, procedures and in the rule of law. So no, um, my, I mean, my bigger concern is not, I don't believe that on January 21st, Donald Trump will still be president. I I agree. But the consequences of this prolonged period of graceless uh, plotting to, to, mm. to overturn the election will be quite significant in terms of the long-term damage to uh, the body politic in the United States. It, it will fatally undermine and hamper the Biden administration, I fear. Um, I, I, think, I think the consequences are quite severe. I don't believe that Donald Trump will succeed in holding on to the presidency. I, I agree with you there. All right. Uh, time, time for last drops, Frank. What would you got? Well, speaking of January, uh, the, the yes, inauguration. Yes, exactly. I was trying to make um, a good transition th there. Thank you. you. Thank you. Uh, we, we at uh, the School of History, Classics, and Archaeology at, at the University of Edinburgh are hosting an event. It's uh, the Fennel Forum, uh, which will bring together, we have the, the most high profile lecture we have every year in history at Edinburgh is called the Fennel Lecture. And the Fennel Forum will bring together a couple of our former lecturers, uh, Patrick Griffin from Notre Dame and Joanne Freeman from Yale, who each delivered the um, Fennel Lecture in recent years, uh, with Laura Belmonte, a historian from Virginia Tech. And, the, and they are going to discuss the inauguration of President Biden, uh, the events of the... <laughs> next few weeks, I think, uh, but, uh, up until the inauguration. Uh, um, and the, the, they'll be discussing the end of the Trump presidency and the beginning of the Biden presidency and trying to provide some historic context for these events. The event's going to be moderated by Alan Little, a history graduate of the University uh, of the BBC. And it should be very, very exciting and interesting. Uh, these are all very, very good public speakers, and uh, it should be an excellent event. And we will share the details. It's going to be open to uh, the public, and we will share the details about the, with, the, with the relevant links and so on, on on the show page. But I want to promote the Fennel Forum. It's 8 p.m. Uh, GMT, so it'll be 3 o'clock on the East Coast in the United States, noon on the West Coast, 8 p.m. here in the U.K. on January 20th. Um, Biden, uh, President Biden should have been inaugurated at that point and given his pre his inaugural address. Uh, and they should have a lot to talk about. Yeah. And they're not going to be having any uh, inauguration balls this year. So, you know, maybe President Biden can, can tune in to watch. Uh, that's right. And they'll be they'll be taking questions as well. Oh, from that's the public. So, so 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 please tune in for that. Well, you know, the, 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 the Fennel lectures have often been been overwhelmingly popular we've had to turn people away where we didn't have enough rooms in the seats in the room to, for everyone who wanted to attend these these great lectures so i guess in the virtual format we can have an infinitely sized room for for people to to attend so that's 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 wonderful. right yeah so please join us on on january 20th david what's your last drop uh well i just wanted to point people to a, a story uh that was posted on twitter and but there's been some news coverage of it too uh but by, by uh our, our friend uh, jackie antonovich who's a, a historian of medicine uh, at Muhlenberg College, um, she just bought a a a old farmhouse uh, from the mid nineteenth century and has been finding all kinds of historical odds and ends in her house as she's uh, been been uh, moving in and setting up. 
And she discovered in the, they have a stone fireplace there. They found a box in the very back of the stone fireplace. And she was like, you know, as a, as a good historian detective was curious about what this box is covered in a layer of dust. And the box on the, on the cover, once she got the dust off says first aid for gas casualties only. And as a historian of medicine, finding a, a box from World War II that says for gas casualties only, only sort of struck her interest. What's inside the box, though, I'm going to leave a mystery, but it's an exciting story about what she found when she opened up the box. And, and I'll share the link so people can, can find out for themselves what the mystery inside the box was. But it's a, a great little, little story about the kinds of stuff that you know people think we historians do where we find things in dusty basements and attics uh, or in the back of, of stone fireplaces uh, of boxes of, of buried treasures, which doesn't happen much, but apparently it happens sometimes. Yeah. Do you remember, David, a year or so back, there was a popular meme on social media, you know, yeah, this is my job. This is what my mother thinks <laughs> I do. This I is do. what That's I actually great. do. So this is, you know, in this story, um, um, you know, the, Jackie Antonovich is, is doing what people think historians, historians do, but do, we rarely yes. do. We rarely discover oh. hidden sources. Yes. Well, it's good that, that she bought the house and not somebody else, given what's in the box. But uh, it's, a, it's an interesting story. So I refer to that to our, 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 our listeners. Absolutely. Great. Great. Until, until next hey, week, Frank. Cheers. Cheers. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.